one will be there today, this evening. If you don't know, I'm, my name's Nathan. I'm an intern here. Um, most people uh, here I recognize, but if not, my name's Nathan. And before we start, let us pray. Lord, we as your church, as your body, acknowledge you. We acknowledge you as the source of all abundant life. And in you and you only are we able to find that. Lord, I pray that the hearts in this room you prepare to accept your word and by your mercy you let those truths um, be heard. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. The dollar and the coin. Isn't it kind of funny that somehow in our society we've taken something that's kind of useless all on its own, a piece of paper and a metal disc, and as a society we all agree now that this metal disc, this piece of paper, is what represents what we value most. It's basically like you could draw on that piece of paper, you could put it into an airplane or something if you really wanted to, but now if you just stamp a little dollar sign on it, you put a face on it, we value that the most, right? It's kind of weird. This, this thing that had nothing became kind of everything to us. Jesus puts it this way. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Wouldn't it be kind of funny if you went to the grocery store and you went up to the counter and you handed them a paper airplane where you're like, groceries please. Right? Like that wouldn't really work. Or if you went up to your landlord and you were handed him a bunch of washers in your hand, and we're like, rent please. Like this doesn't, it doesn't add up. Our society has to approve of this. But they kind of are similar to what we already have. Something useless turned into something we value now. Where our treasure is, our heart is also. The movement of our money signifies the movement of our heart. Where our money goes, our heart is going. You exchange money for what you value, what you treasure. The paper itself, not much, but its expression of your treasure, everything. Jesus is confronted in Luke 12, 13 through 21, with a man whose heart is deceived into thinking a greater inheritance will give him life. The expression of where he places his treasure displays that he is laying up treasure for himself and is not being rich towards God. And for that, Jesus warns him and us today that we need to be on guard because our treasure expresses our heart. Let's read it right now. Starting in verse 13 in Luke 12. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possession. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, relax, 
Or I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have heard or prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Immerse yourself in this story with me. Up to this point, Jesus has healed people with unclean spirits, fevers, leprosy, paralysis, withered hands, and various other ailments. He's even calmed a storm. He's raised people from the dead, and he's casting out demons. Okay, that's pretty shocking. What happens in response? A crowd comes around, a huge crowd. And we learn a little bit more information about that crowd if you look with me in verse 1 of chapter 12. In verse 1 it says, In the meantime, when, there, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. Trampling. This isn't some normal Tuesday night crowd. This is a wild, aggressive, barbaric crowd, one desperately seeking Jesus. In response, Jesus has been teaching them. He believes that's what will give them life. He's been teaching them about the cost of following him, the importance of sacrificial love, the need for compassion towards others, while warning them against the dangers of materialism, emphasizing the need to trust God's provision. So, with this crowd pressing in, voices everywhere, and Jesus at the focus of it all, one man presses through this crowd. He's pressing through because he believes that Fixing his problem is worth the risk. I'm willing to risk it. I'll go through this crowd to find Jesus, this man. But look what he says to him. He says in verse 13, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, at this time, you have to understand the customs of the day. Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, the firstborn son gets a double portion of the inheritance, according to Mosaic law. Calling him teacher, this man perceives Jesus as a godly man with religious authority, wisdom, and power. So he comes to Jesus, longing for him to enforce and justify his wrongful request to take an inheritance that's not rightfully given to him as a younger son. You can just imagine the way this inheritance is kind of lying to him, right? We hear it all the time. If you can get me into your possession, imagine all the life you'll find. Think about it. Happy family, guaranteed. Better reputation, guaranteed. More respect, security of good health. You could travel places. You could get a better education. You could have safety. You could have security. These things are guaranteed. Inheritance. It's lying to him over and over and over again. Jesus knows that these types of promises seem life-giving, but ensnare us and keep us from the true joy himself. So Jesus, his head turns to this man. You can just picture his head slowly turns to this man in a crowd that's going wild. And he prioritizes this one man above the rest. He thinks this issue, above all the other needs, all the other miracles he could be doing, this needs to be addressed. And he says to this man in verse 14, Man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? 
in a very Jesus fashion, his statement is ignored. Or in a very Jesus fashion, he ignores the statement of the other man and returns it with a question. His question focuses on the status and the origin of his position. Who is Jesus? And who made him who he is? Why do you think I'm a judge and arbitrator over you? Why do you think that? Being deceived by his treasure of his heart, he's coming to Jesus more like a genie than a savior. As a godly man, but not the son of man. In his pursuit to find life through an inheritance, he finds himself speaking to the one who identifies as life. A little bit later on, we'll find out that in John 14, 6, he says that I am the way, the truth, the life. Very well known. He's identifying as it, not just giving it, as it. I am life. But because he realizes this man's not getting it, he goes on in verse 15 we see now, says, he says to him, Take care and be on guard against all covetedness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus sees a man that has not been guarding himself against covetedness. He hasn't been on guard. The lies are deeply rooted now. He believes them with all of his heart. This will give me life. Now he is completely blinded by this covetedness, And he's not aware of the fact that the priceless Lamb of God of infinite worth is standing in front of him. Wanting this man to find life in him, he tells him a parable. And maybe the parable will hit. Tells him a parable about the deceitfulness of the heart and the deceitfulness of covetousness. Look with me in verse 16. We'll read through the parable. And after that, we'll come up with three, we'll have to point out three different ways that the parable is speaking to us. Verse 16. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger and larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Three points will summarize this parable. Taking notes, I'll list them out real quickly, and then we'll go through them once at a time. So you only have to hear the first one right now. (laughs) First, coveting deceives us about life's consistency. Second, coveting deceives us about thinking we own life. Third, coveting deceives us into thinking there is no judge or arbitrator over our whole lives. First, coveting deceives us about the about life's consistency. So we read in verse 15 that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The more possessions you have, won't give you life. Can't guarantee it. Jesus is saying that. But then what does life consist of? What else is there? Before we answer that, though, we have to kind of dive back into the story. We must understand that coveting has been deceiving this man, and he's been believing that external treasures now will give him life. External 
But how could these things that he possesses prepare him for eternity? Are any of those things going to pass through the grave? Will any of them make it into eternity? Will he be able to stand before God and be able to say, here you go. No, nothing passes through. Jesus knows this. So Jesus, in verse 21, oh wait, sorry, in verse 20, says, tonight your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Questioning that fact. Just like his father, when he dies, his possessions, guess what's going to happen? They'll pass down to the next person in an inheritance. What is happening to him currently is what he's not observing to happen in the future. How will those things benefit him? Jesus, again, afraid by this, wants to challenge this hard posture. He's pressing in on it. He tells him in verse 21, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Life consistency isn't about the possession or the abundance of possessions or laying up treasure for yourself, but in the very opposite, being rich towards God. Life consistency is more about the direction rather than the possession. It's about a direction, being rich toward God. Let me be clear, though. I feel like it's easy to misunderstand at this moment. There's nothing wrong with having possessions. They are a blessing God gives to those um, who he loves. In God's mercy, oftentimes, he will bless us with a land that's producing plentifully. Now, obviously, unless you're like a farmer or something, that's not literal. But we all know that there are many gifts God has given to us that weren't deserving. We didn't earn them. Like a land just produces on its own. You don't sit there and somehow manifest it by your own will, like grow. No, it just did it. It did it on its own. There are many things that we can get deceived by, not recognizing that these are gifts, children, a job, successful career, talents you have, musical gifts, education. Are you taking credit for something that just grew, that just happened, that God ultimately gave to you as something to steward? All of these gifts were from him and will always be from him. You never owned them, and they were never meant to be used for you, ultimately. This man is a fool because he isn't rich towards God, direction. He hasn't credited God with his possession, and in response, has not directed his money towards the greatest treasure, the lamb of priceless worth. He's, he's priceless. This takes us to our second point in the parable. So we're following along. Our first point was that life, uh, covetedness, deceives, uh, deceives us about life's consistency. Secondly, covetedness, coveting, deceives us about thinking we own life. Five times you'll see in this parable, this man makes a statement of ownership over and over again. You might have picked it up. In verse 17, he says, my crops. In verse 18, he says, my barns. In verse 18 again, he says, my grain. Then he goes on and says, in verse 18 again, my goods. And finally, he says, my soul. Just owning it. I 
owned this. Over and over and over again, he talks to himself like he owns everything and it only affects himself. That's it. Verse 17, he says, and he thought to himself. Verse 19, and I will say to my soul. Did you notice it? He didn't consult anyone. He didn't consult his neighbors. He didn't consult God. He consulted himself. What, what do I want to do? He's thinking things like this. I own life, and I can do what I want with it. Jesus says to this kind of man and us today, you're being a fool. You're being a fool. With every possession you own, we are held responsible to treat them like God's possession. Because they are. They were given to you. They grew out of the ground because God gave them to you. In verse 17, it says, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He's thinking to himself, and he is confronted with a decision. With every possession we own, we are always confronted with a decision. What will I do with it? How will I respond to this crop growing here? Will I lay up treasure for myself, or I be rich towards God? Either continue to believe the lie and say, I know how, life, how to find life, and by my own will, I will get it. Or will we say, I've acquired everything that I've ever needed. The priceless lamb on my behalf has been given to me. Acknowledging him. priceless land given to me and now with everything that I have I seek to love what God treasures him and his people this leads us to our last point our last point third coveting deceives us into thinking we where there is no judge or arbitrator over our whole lives coveting deceives us into thinking there is no judge or arbitrator over our whole lives picture it This man is looking for a judge and arbitrator over his possessions. Jesus is that, but he's way more than he's ever asking for. He wanted a judge over his possessions, not realizing he's more than just a judge over your possessions. So he's trying to help this man at this point acknowledge, or trying to help this man acknowledge what he's already been teaching him up to this point, over and over again. You can see a little bit before this passage in verses 8 and 9. So you can turn there. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 12. It says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. And the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. He's basically saying to him, Look at me. Man, rich man, look at me. Your whole life will be judged, but it will be judged according to one fact. Do you see me? Are you acknowledging me? Are you acknowledging me? Are you acknowledging the fact of who I am and who has made me who I am? I am the Savior. I am the one who can give abundant life and only abundant life found through me. He's calling us today that he's asking us through this parable that we are asked the same question. 
we are called to repentance. Are you acknowledging him? Is the person standing right in front of you, are you just unaware of who he is and who made him who he is? As long as there is life in our lungs right now, church, we have been shown mercy. Undeserving mercy that he gives us breath and breath and breath and breath and breath. Every one being just another gift from God. In God's divine forbearance, he's made a way for those that have not acknowledged him to do that. We are able to still do that. There is still time as long as you are still breathing. You can still confess with your heart, acknowledging the Savior right in front of you. I need you. I have sinned against you. And in you and you only will I find abundant life. Or will you deny him? He says in verse 20, And God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Moment's notice. Boom. Done. You're sleeping unprotected in the most vulnerable of states. Or in verse 40, a little bit after, it says, You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So church, are we being deceived? Are we being deceived? Have we guarded ourselves? Have you guarded yourselves from the deceptions of covetedness? Have you let coveting deceive you about life's consistency, you own life, and that there is no judge? Have you acknowledged the fact that the true life, the one who owns life, and the one who judges is standing right in front of you. Maybe it's for the first time, or maybe the thousandth time, or we are given an opportunity now to turn back to him. Repent for not acknowledging him, not seeing him as a savior that we desperately need. I'll end us with this. Isaiah 61, 7. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in the land, and everlasting joy will be yours. In Christ, if you've accepted him, in your union with him on the cross, and through his righteousness... The older brother's inheritance will be offered to us. A double portion. A double portion? What is that? Knowing God. Knowing a Savior that is the priceless Lamb. Knowing the one that has given of himself fully out of just love and a forbearance. He's just, please, come to me. And that, that is worth living for. Let us pray. Lord, help your church, your bride, to acknowledge you. Help them to see you for who you truly are. Help them to accept you, the gift freely offered. Help them to see you and accept this. 
You are the lamb that is priceless, given on our behalf. Lord, help us to acknowledge you. In your name I pray. Amen.